This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theatre. This seminar, producing. pleasure that I once again welcome you to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre, which are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. It is the 23rd year of these seminars, and they have been the most exciting thing that I think we have done. It is also fitting that I tell you that this is the 50th anniversary of the Wing's Tony Awards, which is also a very exciting time for us. The Wing does what it has been doing for these past 50 years in every way that we can to say theater to the community. We go to hospitals, nursing homes, and aid centers. All of this is done with the people who work in the theater. It stems out of really the belief of a woman named Antoinette Perry, for whom the Tony Award was named. And perhaps we are best known for the Tony Award. But year-round, the American Theater Wing does what the Tony Award stands for, theater. It was not created to reward the longest line at the box office or the best review, but to reward the achievement of excellence in the theater and to pass that along to the community. So year-round, we work. We go to high schools, and we say theater in high schools is very important. We bring the people that work in the theater, the designers and the directors and the singers and the actresses and the producers to tell the young children in the high schools what it is to work in the theater. We have a program that's called Introduction to, program, uh, to Broadway, and that program is just that. It brings students from the five boroughs of New York to see a Broadway show. Most of them for their very first time on Broadway and their very first time in a Broadway house. It's a wonderful, exciting, and very heady experience for them. And one not only that excites them to see the theater, but also gives them role models because from time to time we were able to have discussions with the people who they have seen as well as the stage manager and the house manager who show them that there are other areas of the theater that they can work in. We also have a scholarship and grant program and that has the same qualifications. We give awards, monetary awards, to off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway shows. And these awards are given to honor an achievement of excellence over the years of what they have produced, what they have created, 
and what they have contributed to the community. And so you see that we are hard at work doing what we do, we enjoy what we do, and I think that through the years to have the reputation that the wing has, we have been doing it fairly well. And speaking of reputation, it is the American Theatre Wing's reputation that brings a kind of people to these seminars that we do. And this seminar is no exception. It's on the production, the production of Masterclass, that most exciting and wonderful play that's on Broadway right now. And this is a producing team that made it all possible. So you will learn how easy it is to produce a successful <laughs> Broadway show. George White will take over now and introduce the cast of Masterclass. Thank you, George. On my far right uh, is the uh, stage manager, Diane Trulock, and uh, immediately to her left is casting director, Alan Filderman, and on my immediate right is producer Lewis Allen, who produces both for theater and motion pictures and also for television, and whose Broadway credits include I'm Not Rappaport, uh, True, and A Few Good Men. Uh, now on the far left is Doris Bloom, who is assistant to the co-producer of the project, uh, Robert Whitehead. And uh, immediately next to her is Jim Wiener, advertising representative from Ladun, Wildner, and Wiener. And uh, immediately to his right is Bill Evans, who is the uh, press agent at Public Relations. And uh, immediately on my left is Karen K. Cody, who plays the role of Sophie in the production and originated the role at uh, the gathering at Big Fork in Montana. So she goes back from the very beginning of this. So here we go with the master class on master class, <laughs> um, if you will. Uh, I wanted to start by, uh, not just because uh, she is dressed so beguilingly as a captain, uh, in reality, uh, she is a captain, uh, a captain of the ship. And uh, I'm sure all of us in the theater know that if there wasn't a decent stage manager, indeed an incredibly critical part of the whole production revolves around the captain of the ship here. So I wanted to start with Diane, who, if you would, first of all, do a couple of things for us, and that is tell us a little bit about what the stage manager does, mm -hmm. uh, the care and feeding that goes therein, and also uh, how you got to be a stage manager. That isn't something, well, there is now, I know, classes and some uh, conservatories mm -hmm. of stage management, but it never came that way. No. So. Well, um, what we have to do to uh, keep a show going is basically we're responsible for the running of the show. Um, we're in rehearsals. Usually you're in rehearsals from the very first day, and um, you're responsible to take down all of the blocking. Also, uh, to listen very closely to what the director is telling the actors and to um, keep those intentions because once the show opens, the director leaves and, and many times a stage manager will have to go and say, remember we worked on this and this and this. So you're um, basically um, a caretaker for the director. Uh, once you go into the theater, you um, start working with the designers and the lighting designers, the set designers, the sound designers and they create a look and a style for the show and they work in collaboration with the director 
and once the show opens the designers leave and it's the stage managers responsibility to keep the integrity of the design team also um, we're also responsible for every time you see a light change or you hear a sound cue or you see a piece of furniture moving on and off stage there's somebody the stage manager backstage telling a crew member to do that so if uh, basically if if we were sitting here and this table was on a, a track many times and it tracked on or off we would be telling a stagehand when to do it it's our responsibility to keep the show as close to the original intention as possible also um, to work with understudies and uh, make sure the understudies are capable and um, ready to go on at a moment's notice and believe me it can be a moment's <laughs> notice <laughs> uh, and basically to keep the show going uh, any problems that happen backstage we have to take care of them uh, many times problems out front too somebody's talking in the audience whatever we have to go out and try and uh, make sure that they are, are calmed down or whatever <laughs> so it's it's we're, we're keeping it all up in the air and also uh, it's very important to keep the integrity of the production and of the designers and the directors um, now your other question was right how, did how I, you got there yeah well I started off interestingly enough as I think probably everybody did as an actress uh, I couldn't sing so I lost a lot of work that way. But I wanted to stay within the creative end of it. And I started working in a production office. And I um, was answering phones. And um, they knew I was interested in stage management. And so a show was available. I had to read for the show as an understudy. And I got the role as an understudy. And I think I got it on my reading, too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's how I learned. Um, and I, it was very unique. I learned on Broadway, which is uh, a very unique thing. Down. Usually it doesn't happen that yeah. way. Well, let's go from the captain yeah. to the admiral, <laughs> um, to keep the nautical metaphor intact. Um, and that is uh, Lewis Allen. Uh, would you talk a little bit about, one, um, how you pulled together all of the uh, pieces that a producer does to make this show happen? I know it started in Montana, and we'll get under that and then uh, Doris if he says anything that uh, is not true you can correct him from right. that because you are also in the middle of all that but Lewis right. well actually it, of course it did begin in Montana before I was involved and uh, uh, Terrence McNally wrote this play with uh, Zoe Caldwell in mind which Zoe did it there I was not there were you that you weren't there no I wasn't there either any case uh, it went very well and then uh, Bob Whitehead who was the primary producer of this uh, we share an office together and have done work together a great many times in the past, asked me, gave it to me and said, would you read this? Would you be interested in co-producing it? Well, I read it and uh, I went crazy instantly. I said it, that very day, I think, or the next day, it's a wonderful play because it just leapt from the pages, I thought, the most dramatic, uh, overtly dramatic script I've ever read. And I said, I'll take, I'll co-produce, I'll take any part of it you want. And. Uh, uh, my wife, who is a uh, playwright and screenwriter, uh, she was in Europe, but she came back, and I knew she would, and she had the same reaction. I, I mentioned this because I was curious, because Bob Whitehead had sent it to various other producers. I think he was very insecure about the money raising of the thing, and I'm kind of shocked at how few people understood it. I'd sent it to a couple of theater owners in that regard, and they said, well, 
you know, after, uh, after your opera buffs, who's going to want to see this play? <laughs> I couldn't understand that. In any case, we, uh, the, it was a long, slow process because we started in Philadelphia oh, well over a year ago. I think it was something like February of uh, last year uh, at the uh, Players and Players Theater, a tiny 350-seat house, and they presented as part of their season. It was very successful, and by the, we were, I'd expected to go from there into New York. However, the part, as many of you know have seen it, is a, a monumental theatrical part. And I think Zoe Caldwell felt even the four weeks there, she was just getting into the part. And before we'd gotten that far, uh, we had offers both from Gordon Davidson at the uh, Mark Tay Forum in Los Angeles and from the Kennedy Center. Both wanted it to come there. And so we decided, well, that's, let's go ahead and play, let the thing develop. It was an extraordinarily difficult part. Um, so we went to, uh, after a, a hiatus of, uh, I think, a month or so, we went to the Mark Taper, where it was enormously successful and extended the run, and then to, uh, again, a short hiatus to Washington, to the Eisenhower. Same thing happened. It was sold out and we extended a bit, and then on to New York. But basically, that was the uh, process. Uh, by the time we got through, uh, I would say, to Los Angeles, we were inundated with everybody, anybody you ever ever heard of calling wanting to invest in the show. It was a very easy one in that regard, though it wasn't that simple at the very beginning because of this sort of reservation about being uh, an elite show about opera. Do you have a cadre of investors that you go to each I time? I do. I have, yes. And I, Bob has too. Yes, I have various people who... Uh, I mean, it doesn't apply to major musicals, you know, you're getting the millions, but in the right. shows I've done, uh, I mean, we did uh, Vita in Virginia, for example, $400,000 off-Broadway, which is remarkable, right. uh, and that kind, or this was $600,000. These are very modest, and it's therefore individual investors loom very large, as they used to do in the old days when almost everything was, right. was financed that way. When you, once you get up into the big musical field, it's a totally different ballgame. You have to go to record publishers and uh, theater owners and movie companies and so on. But uh, I do have a very loyal group of investors, and they just come in everything I do. And it's, Doris, your job to make sure well, when they call, they can get these people on the phone, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Partly that, sure. Were you in on the beginning, right then, after when the script went to Lewis? Yes. Oh, well, yes. Doris has been in it on it right. than I have. Yeah, no, I knew when Zoe went out, Zoe hesitated about going out to Montana. And uh, she thought, oh my God, way out there, and she was tired. She just finished working on uh, Vita in Virginia. Uh, she was the director of that, and so she was pretty exhausted, and she thought she didn't want to go out to Montana, and Robert really convinced her to. And there she met the charming Karen. <laughs> and. Uh, really got into the play, or started to get involved in the play. Well, now we have, and we brought up uh, uh, Karen, and uh, before we get to Karen, um, we want to know how Karen got to the production, which brings me to Alan. And uh, although we said it was uh, Terrence wrote, Terrence McNally wrote the play for Zoe, where does that leave you? I know that, but I'm, that's a rhetorical question. But uh, so we have to find other people in the production. Actually, I came on after Karen was involved, because I came aboard after the Montana workshop. It was workshopped in Montana. Karen was a part of the cast there. And then they decided to do the play at the Philadelphia Theater Company, which is Sarah Garanzik's theater in Philadelphia. I happened to be their casting director. So I was brought in to meet with Mr. Whitehead and Mr. Folia. Luckily, I have a background in casting opera as well as theater. So I got the job. Karen had already played the role in Montana. and. 
so I came aboard after Zoe and although we, were we weren't totally sure that Karen was going to come because Karen lives in Seattle and has a, a happy life in Seattle. We were never quite sure that she was going to want to come and so but Karen was already involved, Zoe was already involved. I was brought, brought on for the other roles. Well, now tell me how, uh, I know there are, there are uh, singers and there's also an accompanist who has to be, in a sense, cast. It isn't just somebody who plays the piano, although it has to play the piano. Uh, so how did you find, how do you find the people? Because as you say, you cast opera, which is, you know, uh, a fairly, it would seem to me a fairly new thing. In the old days, you have the impresario that uh, does this. But you're Luckily, because I had been hired uh, to do some crossover opera pieces for the Houston Opera Company. I had at my beck and call a list of opera managers, which is a different world than theatrical agents. And I just knew how to get in touch with them. I knew who they were. I knew who to call, um, which helped in casting, certainly in casting the tenor. Um, and because I'm a casting director who casts a lot of musicals, I work with a lot of musical directors. And I've always known who those people are. When I was presented with this play and I saw I had to have someone who played the piano beautifully but could also act and be on stage for over two hours, David came to my mind immediately because I knew he moved to New York to be an actor. I knew he was in the original cast of Merrily We Roll Along and I knew that he was you know, a diva piano player. I mean, my very first list, I think he was the first name, I think, on my very first list for the role. It was interesting because yesterday on the seminars we had uh, Lenny Folia, and he said also it was wonderful because this is the one person at, when you had the call that actually sat erect through the whole thing, <laughs> yes. you know, and was into it rather than, you know. Which came first in your seeking for the cast, the, um, the operatic or the, the musical part or the actors? It's, it's an unbelievable combination of both. I mean, they have to, especially um, whoever was going to play Sharon and whoever was going to play Tony, it has to be totally believable that they're opera singers. They both sing full arias. Uh, they all, uh, Lenny and Terrence always wanted to not have Broadway singers doing a good stab at an aria, but for it to sound like a true opera singer. But they have full scenes, they're on stage, they have to be able to act. And it, was, it always was presented to me that it had to be both. The way I approached it, though, is that was to find opera singers who could act, as opposed to actors who could sing. You can always find actors who can sing. Actors who can sing opera would be trickier. I approached it from finding opera singers who could act, and luckily, I think we did. Very well. Karen, how did yeah. you find Montana then, and how uh, in, in Seattle, and when's your way to Montana and then here? Well, a girlfriend of mine uh, does this play conference in Montana, and uh, I would just go out there basically as a vacation, as a, you know, a, which a lot of people did. I mean, that was part of the um, attraction of going to Montana. She would write to playwrights and say, um, we can offer you two Where weeks in, Montana is it? in uh, Big Fork, a little resort town. She would offer the playwrights um, two weeks in beautiful Montana and a company of professional actors and that the playwright could work on whatever they wanted to work on, which for playwrights is really rare. Usually they're commissioned. They're told, you know, we want you to write this and this and this for us. And for a playwright to be offered the chance to work on whatever they feel like working on is really rare. And so um, a lot of playwrights found 
this as their home, their riding home. They would say that if it wasn't for Big Fork every year, they wouldn't sit down. So it was, it was a great experience for everybody. Um, and uh, Terrence, of course, brought this script out, and he had the first act written when he got there, and I think he finished the second act there in Montana. And, um, well, but you're an opera singer, is that correct? No. You're not? No. <laughs> okay. Not at all. I sing musical theater, but I'm faking it. <laughs> I say, aha. Don't tell anybody. No, 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 that, that, that's right. Do you go on vocal rest? We heard about vocal rest yesterday, which gives me, which gives you a, an Excedrin headache, I imagine, because it, you know these people do go on vocal rest. So they do, but luckily we also have spectacular understudies. Yeah. And um, we haven't. It hasn't been a problem, and a couple of the cast members have had to go on vocal rest. Their understudies have been spectacular, and I don't mm -hmm. think anybody's ever been disappointed at all by an understudy's performance. Well, they almost aren't understudies, and they almost are, like, interact. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. some have been on quite a bit, others not at all. Uh -huh. Well, now, we heard about um, the fact that uh, the, the first thing, which is... Uh, uh, Louis, you're, you know, the reaction of, of some theater owners and people saying only opera buffs yes, would like this. Right. Uh, and um, so, which means that both uh, Jim and Bill have your work, or seemingly cut out for you, if that is indeed the, uh, the take that people are going to make on this. How do you do that? How do you get around that? How do you Which sell one more? came first? Exactly. With you. Well, so. <laughs> you came first. How old are you, Bill? <laughs> uh, I, I guess we came to the project at about the same time. Who uh, makes that decision of, that it is Bill and, the, and it is the producer? The producer does. So at, when you're casting your ship, in a sense, they come on at right. the beginning right. of this. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so how did, what was the... What, do you, obviously, you interact very, very closely. You have to for, for all of these things. We've uh, worked together before, yes. And uh, I, I suppose uh, that the same thing would be true for Bill as, as it is for me in the advertising field. We try and keep abreast of all of the productions that are going to be coming to Broadway or off-Broadway and maintain contact with the various producers in an effort to get their attention, as anybody connected with the production would, and apply for work. Mm -hmm. um, we requested that um, we get a copy of the script early on, and we were privileged to do so. And as Lewis said, we, we fell in love with it immediately. Uh, all of us who read it at the ad agency uh, thought that it was just a dynamic property. And um, when you speak about the, the, the opera world and the, music and the drama world and, and Broadway in general, there, there wasn't a problem with that. I, I, I didn't listen to any of the music the first time I looked at the piece. And yet, it all came to life, right from the, the written page. And it seemed to me that, that it was going to attract a wide audience. That, that was never a, a real problem for me. We had three great entities, as we crassly put it in my field, to sell. And, and that's the, the wonderful play that Terrence wrote, and the, the marvelous actress who is Zoe Caldwell. And thirdly, and, and not unimportantly, Maria Callas, who is a worldwide renowned entity even today and um, those three elements gave us a wealth of material with which to work now how did you choose I, I, I'm learning a new advertising speak the icon which I just learned was was the symbol for the show that's after yes. all these years I didn't know what an icon was except something was in a Russian corner that people bowed to <laughs> but anyway uh, uh, what gave you who chose the uh, the symbol of, of 
of Zoe and that. Was that you, or how did you come to that? Well, um, in terms of the marketing, it's it's a, a, a developmental process that takes a little bit of time. In this case, um, we presented rough ideas um, of of how we thought the play should be presented graphically to the public. Um, it it did not include uh, such a, a dominating uh, illustration of Zoe to begin with, but as we uh, developed the piece, we felt that that was most important. Um, uh, we combined the, the images of Maria Callas. Uh, it's very clever, as you can mm. see. It, it, it's extremely clever, the window card that, that's done. Well, we went, we went through images of, of Callas <laughs> to begin with um, at, at great length for a long period of time until we found something that we all thought was the appropriate piece. Uh, the producers, of course, <coughs> in anything that, that I have to do, have the final say. and. Um, eventually, we all fell in love with the image that you see ghosted in the uh, artwork. Um, we began to feel that, that Zoe's uh, portrayal was so magnificent, so large, and she's got such a great following in theater that uh, it was very important to uh, make her the focal point of the piece. And we combined uh, photography and illustration and uh, involved the third element, which is the, the beautiful set as a backdrop for the artwork. And those three things came together in, in a long process um, to arrive at what you see today. And, and Doris, it was your job to ride herd on pulling all these things together from the producer's point of view. I assume meetings and juggling all of that. Yeah, that's true. We always had to schedule meetings with all the department people, Lewis and the other producers. And uh, one of our producers lives in Boston, so she had to be notified when there was an important session and Bill and his staff and Jim. And Doris was also uh, a key coordinator between uh, Lewis and Robert and Spring and Zoe because you worked with Zoe a very long time as well and Zoe Caldwell immerses herself in her roles and this is so there's so much to immerse in if that's the correct uh, terminology and she had all these books and Doris would get these more books and then there'd be more books and then there'd be a favorite photo that Lewis found or Robert found or Zoe found and this would get to Jim and Jim's uh, art director Patrick Flood who, who actually did the piece um, also my, my feeling is that all of us do what we do I think pretty well but we're not artists so if we can express what we have in our heart or soul or sense of the show which it's an articulate group, and uh, if that art director and, and Jim and his staff can, can hear what they're saying, then go away and think, I think I know what they're after. I think I can, and, and the dream is, and in this case I think it's true, is that they go away and they come up with another spin that's even better than maybe what you know, my own non-art directing uh, imagination can pull together. And this was, this was I think, an inspired uh, piece and uh, in color in the New York Times when we took our announcement ad, it was uh, it's an it's a newish thing in the New York Times. It was sensational. Uh, yeah. It's for them to make lots more money, and they do, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's also up to speed in the world of graphics that people are used to seeing. And we live in a world of videos and CDs and, and the most sophisticated MTV graphics. And, and, you know, we're bombarded with all this stuff. And the kids growing up, it, the MTV style of cutting everything. And, you know, and uh, here we are uh, presenting a, a, a show about an opera singer, uh, you know, and it, the, the reaction that some of Lewis's uh, theater owners and so forth 
had, we didn't want to uh, get stuck there. So ultimately, I think it's, it's sort of a sophisticated sense of the marketplace. And in this marketplace where there is gangster rap and everything else, I feel that this piece represented when you put your money down and you bought a ticket and you went to Seamaster class, it coordinated with the sense you got when you opened the New York Times that day and the color and the texture of it and the feeling of it. Um, I think it's, it's extraordinarily successful and it's a, it's a very hard thing to do to get it right. And I think the collaborative thing in this case was the, the real success and Patrick Flood. Well, the hard thing to do was to, to develop a piece that would be as classy as the show is to represent it in that in that Does high costs manner. Does come into money? Do you, do you say there's just so much money for this, or do you go out and bring us in the piece that will be right? Well, money is is a concern, of course, in in all the endeavors. Uh, that that's always a fact. But you're not constricted in the budget to no, X. No. We wouldn't quit till we get it right. Right. Well, we we, we spent, oh, I wanted to we get spent an awful lot of effort on it. Uh, it took a long time to get it just so, just perfect, and. Um, from my point of view, that, that really wasn't a factor. Um, we're not in a charity business, but by the same token, we, uh, that's our work, and it, it has to represent us as well as the show. And so, uh, yes, money is a factor, but I, we weren't going to let that stand in our way of, of developing a piece that we thought was perfect. Well, now, you, you, you mentioned about that, that it took a long time. I mean, you're you had both a challenge and a mission to convey to <coughs> well, and one, one of the first uh, pieces of art you presented was that drawing in its essence this the face of Callus and this which we liked yes but it was a long process of working on it and honing in on it and getting it right it probably took several months i think did it uh, not definitely yeah. yes there was At one least. point when we were standing i think it was in doris's office and, and zoe came in to see it and we were all i think lewis and robert and, zoe, and, and doris were standing there and she's looking at it and she goes does my picture have to be in it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Move on. Because we've been grueling over this thing. And uh, yes was the answer. And then once she, she accepted that, uh, she also was very enthusiastic and supportive yeah. about it. And that, that's a part of it, too, that you want everybody to feel good about it. Um, Isn't that unusual to have your star <coughs> come in for that? Well, yes and no. Ultimately, though, if it's a... Uh, any kind of a likeness of the star, then uh, it would not be unusual. It would be, they would probably have it in their contract that they would have any likeness of them that we had control over, meaning uh, photos that we shoot ourselves for our publicity purposes or advertising purposes or artwork, that we would uh, s explicitly get their approval. I don't think so explicitly. Uh, no, a lot of big stars really are very tough about that. Oh. They have in their contracts and they go over every photograph. Zoe doesn't really seem to care. Well, if you do something she doesn't like, she'll tell you. Right. <laughs> but so you, one would always clear it with a star because uh, you don't want to be unhappy. And, and to that point, we had to actually work directly with Zoe. We worked from a sketch of her in profile to begin with. Uh, to develop from the, the point that Lewis mentioned, where we had a, a rough layout that gave us the, the general idea that we wanted. Uh, at, but at some point during the Philadelphia engagement, I took an artist down there, and we sat with Zoe in her uh, dressing room and sketched her, and uh, worked directly with her on that image from which this mm -hmm. developed. That was simply a pencil sketch but it, it gave us a springboard to develop what you finally see. And the other end of the, from the pencil sketches, Lewis happens to be very uh, computer uh, literate and art literate. And, and uh, 
uh, he got the idea and Jim was able to implement it. We went over there one day and we were morphing in their uh, computer where, you know, okay, let's have 10% of callous face and 90 zo and let's give 75 zo. So it was an, a, a, what we got sort of looked like Betty Crocker to me. <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't, it didn't work, it but it was, it was really the interesting. The idea was to get a, cro a face that looked both like zo and callous, but of course it, was, uh, it looked like neither one, finally. It, yeah, <laughs> but it was, it was part, it's just indicative, I think, of the kind of, of depth that this produ producing team cares about getting it right. Uh, and I, I, I hate to sound like the PR guy, but I will say that this, this project is one, and I've been doing this for 24 years now, and every now and then it comes together in a way that every part of the producing unit, as well as the, the creative unit, somehow it all comes together and it comes together well. And it has to do with the people, it has to do with Terrence McNally, who is a playwright at the top of his game, won the Tony Award last year for Love, Valor, Compassion, wrote a script from the, the rock bottom of his soul about uh, someone who had inspired him from his earliest years. Lewis and Robert and Doris are, are in, in the producing royalty of Broadway who have been here producing uh, Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller, everyone you've ever heard of. And they care about the quality. Zoe is, is just a talent beyond description and they listen to you these people listen we also have a young director making his broadway debut lenny folia and the collaboration between terrence and lenny and the producers we have two people making their broadway debuts on the stage karen k cody and uh jay hunter morris also audra mcdonald is is a wonderful star who burst on the scene in carousel somehow all of these quality things starting in Philadelphia for us, and Montana for you, everybody was encouraged and supported to do what they do, and you go t to the wall, and you go to the point where the producers have to make the decision, ultimately. However, they listen and encourage and want to hear, and it develops, it really does. I, I agree that the result is everything that you say, and it's interesting to hear how it all came together. But I'd like to take you back a step why did why did Terrence come to Bob Whitehead and Allen first? Had was there any connection? Had you done anything? No, he came to Zoe because of Zoe. He wrote it for Zoe Caldwell. Because <coughs> Zoe had Zoe done was a married play. to Bob Whitehead. Yes. Yeah, I suppose everybody knows. Zoe did a play called A Perfect Ganesh at the Manhattan mm -hmm. Theater Club, mm -hmm. and that was the, an experience, uh, the first experience she had working with Terrence and Terrence working with her, and I think that he saw her talent in a big way and I think he's the kind of playwright who usually has somebody in mind when he writes a play and um, he thought of Zoe for this particular play and approached her and he himself had attended many of Maria Callas's uh, master classes at Juilliard so this was a thought and a thing and a, an embryo that was growing in his head and heart I think for many years and then Zoe was the personification of it. She could she could bring it to life, and so that's so how. So now it that you, you you've got it and you're all set, who's the first one that comes into line? Is it you say well, now the general manager or you? Where do you where do you start building your? Once you have the your, project, everything's together. Set now you're ready to go and you know this is what you want to do. You and Bob and Doris. Well, we we work with the general manager who is supposed to be here, Stuart Thompson. Yeah, unfortunately, but, he is. Uh, <coughs> 
Managing so, an ideal husband. <laughs> <laughs> Managing an ideal husband, yeah. which is the name of a play. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Right. <laughs> Tell me who's the first one that comes on. Is that Well, Stuart, uh, as a general manager, is on from the beginning with us. In fact, right. he is that's in our I office. Know. Shares in our office. Doris and Bob Whitehead and I and Stuart all have an office together. So he is right from the beginning because he has to do all the construction of the, they do all the contracts and all the. Not does the he hire you? Does yes, Stuart? he does in right. tandem with. Well. Um, uh, Diane has been with us for quite a while on a number of shows. Mm -hmm. She's been with me and with uh, uh, various, I will, you can tell, tick off some other ones. <laughs> so in fact, we have a kind of a cadre of a people group. that we work yeah. with uh, regularly. Yeah. And uh, uh, Bill Evans has done, I don't know how many, the last, every show we've done, right, for yes. some time, yeah. several years. So you're one of the few production <laughs> companies that are constantly in business with with offices and a staff and the same people to call upon. There, right. I think there are not many of, of that around anymore, are there? Well, there are some, but a lot of them, you know, there are the major ones such as Cameron McIntosh and so on, which are industries in effect, I think of them. Mm -hmm. But I think of the smaller, there are not very many smaller independent producers. You have a real team or an mm -hmm. ongoing, yeah, that's ongoing, ongoing system. system. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. Okay, now where, do, where does the nitty-gritty come in? Where do you get your money? Where do you get your investors from? Well, as you says, uh, 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 we we all have uh, old friends that invest regularly anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of professionals when they smell something coming in that's hot, they all jump in, want to get into it. Uh, as I said, in this case, it was slow at first, but uh, in, in my case, I just said I will commit to the whole, whatever it is, the whole thing anyway, going in. Uh, it was a question of who you would let in, in this case. Mm -hmm. I guess if you were a young or starting out producer, I don't know, you might start with your Christmas card list. I don't know. I mean, I, that's exactly it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, fair enough. Um, great. I wanted to also go on uh, to uh, getting back to Alan for a moment because uh, not only because it, obviously you were brought in pretty early, I would assume, in the process. Yes. And uh, that, that's one, one thing. What was the charge given to you, apart from just getting, uh, you've talked about opera singers, not, not, uh, uh, singing actresses, <laughs> but uh, at the same time, uh, a little bit more about uh, for people who wanted to get to a casting director, what do you do? Do you go around and see things? Obviously you must, but do you, how do you get your stable? Sure, again, for this play, the process was a little different, but in general, uh, yes, yeah, certainly going to see as much theater as I possibly can. Also, going to see as many movies and watching as much television, it's a hard life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as I possibly can, and uh, I naturally just pay attention to the actors and try and remember names, always look at cast lists. Uh, the other thing I think is having very good relationships with agents and knowing who the smart ones are, knowing that when the smart ones call you and say you have to see this person being smart enough to say okay and not no, uh, and uh, always trying to have an open door so that I'm constantly meeting new people and new talents. Um, most of which would come in handy for everything except this play. Uh, again, because I, I was extraordinarily excited when this was happening for me, because I was the casting director for Philadelphia Theatre Company. I had cast a production of uh, Lips Together to the Glory. stop for a minute and tell us about the Philadelphia Theatre Company. Hmm. Why did they go there? Tell me a little bit about it. Well, that. actually, I think it's because, and I'm not an expert on this, but I believe it's because uh, Sarah Garanzik had produced a production of Lips Together, Teeth of Parks mm -hmm. the year before that Terrence came down and saw and was extraordinarily impressed with. I believe this is true. And uh, Sarah being 
an extremely intelligent woman then just opened the door to Terrence and said, if you have anything new ever, please come here. And uh, so if I'm getting any of this wrong. So I believe that Terrence then, when he had a new play and wanted to do something out of town, not bring it right into New York, mm -hmm. contacted Sarah about getting the process started, getting it started there. Is that? That's correct. He also yeah. felt that that theater was perfect for the show. Yeah. I mean, the theater itself. Exactly. Theater. Because mm -hmm. they what, what is What kind of a theater is it? Is, is, is it a it's regional theater? Is oh, it a yeah. not-for-profit theater? Yeah. They what rent kind of a theater in Philadelphia called regional. the Plays and Players yeah. Theater, which is a jewel box recreation of a larger theater in Philadelphia, which uh, the, uh, it used to be called the Schubert, now it's the Merriam. This is a scaled down uh, version of the same theater. And it's, I mean, it's just, it's a very, very beautiful physical place to do it and a very good and place. And is it a regional story. theater? What is the, how yes, is the Yes, the Philadelphia Theater Company is a Lord, a Lord. regional mm -hmm. theater. Um, do you want to explain what Lord is? Um, League of Regional Theaters? It's the League of Regional Theaters, and they're the regional theaters all over the country, hopefully in as many cities as possible. Uh, that, um, what stands for? Uh, League of Regional Theaters. Yeah. They're non-profit. It's different than the Broadway for-profit production, mm -hmm. and the contract is different that the actors work under. Uh, all the rates are different. And most of the theaters around the country are Lort theaters. There's some commercial houses in each city, um, they get touring packages. They get touring packages, but yeah. most of the theaters that exist yeah. all around the rest of the country, outside of New York, are nonprofit, uh, different contract theaters. You know, you bring up something that, that also we talked about the theater. We're talking about the physical theater, and we're talking about perfect for the play. Now, um, who made that decision? Is that Terrence? Is that Leonard? Is it? Uh, because obviously, you're now also in a in a in a relatively small Broadway house. Well, who? Right. Uh, well, Terrence wanted it done there, and uh, several people looked at it. Everybody just agreed that it was a wonderful place to do it. Rather than doing it, in, I mean, you're going to be sold out, but... Uh, no, it's supposed to be a concert hall this is being played in, and it just seemed to fit that description. <coughs> beautiful theater that mm -hmm. you felt as you were in a concert hall, a lovely concert hall. Mm -hmm. It was no problem about it. I mean, the, it was, everybody agreed that it was a perfect place to do it. So you're, in a sense, casting the theater as well? Oh, absolutely. You always do um, that, yes. Yeah, Yeah, indeed. And I think it's... In a, an important uh, consideration, mm -hmm. particularly in this piece. Um, and speaking of this now, uh, we've been talking a great deal about, again, the icon, the image of So Caldwell, but I know that uh, shortly she is leaving the show and you have Patti Lapone. What are you going to do and whose job is it to do what? Well, I guess some of, the same, the some of the same things occur that, that occurred in the original developmental process. We, we collaborate, we discuss first how we think the transfer should be made. Um, we're, we're already working with images of Patti LuPone in an effort to present her in as dynamic a way as we have with Zoe Caldwell. And um, we will develop a transition piece and um, replace Zoe's image with Patty's image. It may not be identical, um, but it, it, it will be close enough to retain the, the feel the, uh, that we developed initially. Uh, that was the, from, the, from day one, we, we all wanted this play to have a long life, and we knew that Zoe would do it for a period of time in the best of circumstances. Uh, so there was, from the, from the very beginning, there was always thought of how will we proceed. 
um, we had that in the back of our mind when we developed the piece initially. And so it, it will evolve into a piece that presents Patty in, uh, in Bill, in what will you do? What, what's your role? Yeah, I imagine you would have a, a, you know, you've got to do a whole new marketing approach because people are going to say, I think also, picking up on what Isabel just said, in many people's minds, that production is so, or that work, that play is so much Zoe's in a lot of theater goes about, you are left with quite a marketing job and how do you, what are you going to do? Well, I, I think it's one of those uh, double-edged swords because you certainly don't want to play that down prior to coming to New York with Zoe Caldwell. Um, and we didn't. However, I, I also think that like Terence McNally, Zoe is a creature of the theater. And she is well known, uh, enormously well known to people who, who love the theater and have gone over the years. However, as a mass media celebrity star, it's not something she's ever sought or been interested in. And, and her world, you know, is very much uh, the theater. So we were aiming, uh, you know, at a certain audience initially, the core group who would respond to that. Uh, and we were all happily uh, surprised a little to hear that Patti LuPone was the choice because it's not immediately what you would think. And you, I think people were expecting something uh, much more traditional of, of a, a, an, an actress of long standing who's been around forever and done worthy things and, and it's a very difficult thing to do. And Patti uh, is a great person on the stage in terms of strength. We have seen her be a diva. She is a great diva. You know, if anyone who's seen Evita, she holds the stage in a very powerful theatrical way, which is what Zoe does in Zoe's way. Patty does it in her way. So hopefully, and I must uh, say that the reaction to everybody uh, in the press and in the theater community has been uniformly positive of saying, what a good idea. And of course, Patty, uh, you know, has been very much in the forefront of things over the last few years and, and personally had her own show earlier this season sure. on stage. And uh, oddly enough, she came to see a, a matinee on the day that we didn't, uh, or she didn't have a, a matinee day. So she came to see Zoe in the afternoon and, and uh, saw the performance and went back and was so knocked out by Zoe's performance that she was, you know, she thought, well, how can I, I can't go out on a stage now. I can't do that, you know. So anyway, she went out there and she ended up as, as uh, there's part of her show where she conversed with the audience. She talked about Zoe Caldwell and talked about Maria Collis and how, how thrilling it was and all this. And she did that for a few days and we get reports backstage and she talked about you again today on stage, you know. And so it was, there was this little something going there, you know, and, and Patty was very stimulated and then very much uh, without any idea ever that, that she'd end up be, being the one to come in and she she's very uh, she's very very up about it and very scared about it and, and uh, all the things that that Zoe was too uh, and so I think that we have uh, a wonderful kind of basic good feeling sometimes you have plays or replacements or stars where they go oh no you're you, you know you can't you're not going to do but that but on the other hand you you can't use a theme of you know, if, if, if you thought Zoe was wonderful, wait until you see. <laughs> so how are you going to turn around and say this is an exciting... Well, you'll see a photograph of Patty with a ghosted Collis in the background. So you'll And the, the photograph and the art treatment of it is going to hopefully be exciting to look at. Patty also will bring her own personality and acting into it. And where will you focus? 
your, your particular area? On I think basically that, and this is a great reminder too, that this is not a vehicle, this is not a one-woman right. concert, this is not a master class, it's a play. And while Zoe brings all of her electricity and personal stamp to it, there's no question that director Folia is going to come in and collaborate with Patty, and they're going to come up with their own things, and you're going to see the masterclass experience, and you're going to see Patty in it. And hopefully, they'll be the person after Patty. You know. Your publicity is going to be that? That you well, well also, Patty is a personality. She's well-known. People, people know her. I'd like to, to, to find out what publicity is in the oh. show. Well, the first thing is the announcement, and we, we've had an announcement. Announcements of this order get leaked, you know, and so uh, nothing to do about it, no matter how hard we try. Mm -hmm. And one has to give up the idea of uh, control, which is well, Isn't very that somehow useful? Some, if you know it's going to come, then if you're If you're the one playing the card, sometimes it can be quite unuseful, uh, especially if a deal isn't set. You know, uh, that can be uh, quite un unfortunate. But in this case, it was, and it was fine. And you can't, when you're dealing with somebody uh, of that level, it's hard. Sometimes, yes, you can plant, uh, you know, as the White House does. You, what a surprise this leaked, you know. <laughs> but um, you also want to shape it, and you want to make it an announcement. And, and Peter Marks, the New York Times, has had it in his column. It's been in the other papers. And then selectively, and of course, Patty did a tremendous amount of publicity for her own show earlier. So we are very much in tune with that, and Philip Rinaldi, who did her, the press on that show, because she's hit many of the places already that you, one would ordinarily go to. And also, you want to give Patty a chance to play this in front of an audience. So at some point, there will be critics. And that, if you will consider that publicity, in a sense, it is because it, it says she's here, they respond to her, and she, you know, she's doing, she's in this role now. And so then it becomes also how much can Patty do in one day? How much can Zoe do in one day? And the, the practicalities of it, um, one has to really be sensitive to. And the truth is, my theory is that the, the only absolute job they have is to go out there and do their stuff on stage. And if we can make it comfortable enough and uh, appropriate enough and the right things. And Zoe is so uh, not connected to the idea of publicity. Um, it's always like a surprise or like, why am I asking her? You know, And, and uh, you have to sort of explain it and make it seem worthwhile because she really concentrates so, so fiercely you know, every day. And Patty also uh, is a very intense she approaches it in the same intense way. So uh, we try to only ask the important things. We try to put them in an order where, if the New York Times has announced it and the other papers have announced it, it'd be great to make a network television morning show, or in some cases, 2020, or the CBS Morning News, Sunday morning, or uh, all these magazine will they shows. Go on, will they go on early morning shows? Will Patty do Yes, they, they, they will. Now, you can't mm -hmm. book them for, you know, like a crazy tour of doing everything in one week, which you couldn't do anyway. But you have to really be selective, and you have to, again, uh, my job is to coordinate what the needs are of the Today Show. If, if there's an interest and a slot to get someone, A, who's going to interview who you have seen the show, 
many times or sometimes they get to the show and the interviewer says well I haven't had a chance to see you but I hear you're great mm -hmm. tell us about your show and it's like not a good thing for no. people who, who work from you know integrity picking up on that what do you say this is not a seminar today in, 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 in acting but but give us a would you give us a kind of a uh, what do you do when you pick up the phone to the Today Show what do you say uh, to get through, you know, hey, you want to do an interview? Right. I got an interview for you. What, what, what do you do? Well, I understand that you know these people, right? But still, as as Lewis goes to his, uh, you know, uh, longtime investors, uh, these are people that you build up relationships with over the years, and hopefully, and as Alan says about the agents who tell you the truth that uh, over the years you have a, a shred of integrity with these people, and that they know it's worth taking the call at least and talking to you. And one of the great things on Masterclass was we had Philadelphia, and then we had a break. Then we had Los Angeles, and we had a break. And when they say in the old days that the drums started beating, I'm telling you, the timpanis were loudly sounding. And so people would get the word. And the best thing I can do is tell my contact, or encourage my contact at the Today Show, get on the train and go to Philadelphia. Or if you're in Los Angeles, go see the show. because then they get i can suggest and tell them what's up but they don't have all day either they've got a, they've got their needs so my my job is to make it easy for them wave the flag a little bit and say pay, pay attention to this one really and, and be selective i guess that's yes, the most important yes thing. and not not uh, uh drub them every single day yeah. with a mm -hmm. new idea that clearly they couldn't lose well there's the other thing now uh, we, i want to go back a second because we you know, there's the old saying that uh, a good idea has a million fathers and, and a bad idea is an orphan. Um, um, the, um, who had the idea for Patty Lapone? Fess up, somebody. Well, well maybe Doris. Uh, I think Alan. Oh, the cover. Terrence. 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 It was, uh, I, had, I had made up a spectacular list, I thought. <laughs> and we sat, and everybody came in with their list, and Patty was actually on Terrence's list. And the idea um, is Terrence's. Uh -huh. that's, okay. that's interesting. Uh, uh, we've been involved with these producers before, and um, I, I chat almost every other day with Doris, and we knew that this time was coming, and Doris sort of said, who would you think of? And uh, among the several names that we kicked around in our office, my partner, John Wilner, suggested Patty Lupone as well. Now, that was it was put off and I, I would assume a totally independent decision on your part but some of us did think of her uh, as a as such a dynamic personality so it, it's really exactly. we, were, and of course, any we said idea. oh it was our idea right no. so there's several people obviously would have thought of because it is such a great idea mm. um, Doris I, what is your job in this what? You're being very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're a traffic cop, but I mean... That's about it. Uh, no, I, cop, I would say Doris is just as important in our production mm. side. Uh, the same thing that Diane does for the theater of the show Basically, itself. Basically, it's like coordinating, yeah. Exactly. Do you speak right. for we, Bob, for example? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I do, because I kind of know what his answer would be. Mm -hmm. And uh, occasionally I hesitate and say, no, I must really finally check with him. But I work with him for so many years that I, I can kind of second guess him. And it's a matter of just the opposite, being in the office, what Diane does on the stage is to coordinate with, with all the departments. Uh, 
and make sure the right people are talking to the right right the other and people. sometimes and Doris yeah. is the only one who has oh, all the right. pieces mm. of the puzzle yeah. oh yeah she knows yeah. what Lewis said and Robert <laughs> right. said and what Mike called and asked oh, this yeah. morning and Diane said this yeah. and Doris sometimes is the only place where you finally get all the pieces now if I wanted to get if I was a, a, a playwright or a director or an actor and I wanted to get to Lewis Allen or Robert Whitehead and I got I would possibly get to you I would probably get to you first maybe yes how would I get by you to them <laughs> difficulty <laughs> exactly but what might compel you to do that I, I realized that I'm asking you professional secrets but I think it's an interesting well is there anything that maybe makes you go to either uh, Bob or to Lewis or something and say you know this person have you ever had that happen? Yes, I've had certain things. Why? It's sort of like Alan answering that he pays attention to what's going on and sees a lot of things off-Broadway and in workshops. And um, I'm also affiliated with a school called the Neighborhood Playhouse. And Robert is the president of that board, too. So being part of that, um, I see all of their productions, and so I know if there's a great new talent that's coming out, and that maybe that person should be seen by someone like, uh, at least have a meeting, uh, get counsel, or I'll have them come into the office and talk to me about uh, giving them a little bit of uh, the truth and the hurt of it and the encouragement. But uh, playwrights do submit scripts and people do send in their photographs. And we try to read as much as we can, but it's almost impossible to read uh, the plays that come in. But you try to pay attention. At this point, hold it. Remember what you said, because you're going to continue when we get back. We have to take a break now, and only for a couple of minutes, and please don't go away so we can come right back again and continue this discussion on working in the theater. Thank you. Sorry, guys. This is CUNY TV, Channel 75. We're continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. And this seminar is on the production, the production of Masterclass, that wonderful, exciting show that's playing on Broadway right now. We have the entire team that brought it to light. And behind them stands still another team that is not with us today. But these are the spokesperson for the production of Masterclass. And as we were talking, we talked about how it started, how it started in the office of Doris Bloom and went on to all the people that are here. George White is our co-chairman and uh, George is president of the O'Neill Center in Waterford, Connecticut and on the faculty of Yale, and a marvelous director both here and abroad. And so, George, with all of those credits on your shoulders, it now behooves you to <laughs> okay. bring out the best here. Thank you, Isabel. Well, it's easy with this crowd. But uh, I, uh, I wanted to uh, get on to something. We talked a little bit about the selection of the, of the theater uh, in which it's playing because of its, uh, the sense of a concert hall and intimacy and, and all of that. Uh, but there also, it is a member, I believe, of uh, the New York Theater, if that's what it's called, the Alliance, which uh, 
other than being a cabal. <laughs> um, I, I wondered if um, you could perhaps, Lewis, tell us a little bit about what the Lions is, because it's a rather revolutionary uh, right. concept. Right. I'm sorry uh, Bob Whitehead isn't here, because he really was the, almost the primary with the founder of the Alliance uh, through the League of American Theaters. It was set up, it's called the Broadway Alliance, it was set up because of the enormous costs of doing plays on Broadway. And it seemed to so prohibitive that it has become, and still is, very difficult to do a straight play on Broadway. So working with all the unions and the league, the, managers, the man company managers, the press agents, everybody, so the takes, unions. all the unions yeah. take a 25% cut in their fees, their normal fees. Uh, the production itself has a cap of, um, I think it's $2,500 a week now for any salary. You can't pay anyone more than that. Uh, and uh, let's see, what else? Well, and of course the ticket prices then are limited to the top price of an off-Broadway show. Now, you can see this uh, does make the whole production cheaper, it makes it cheaper to run and so on. Uh, and that's the idea behind it. Uh, it um, there are a couple of problems with it too, I'll get into in a moment. Uh, but th this is how we did the production. So we were able to do the whole thing for a modest $600,000 sum. Uh, the participants take all these cuts. If the show is profitable, when it goes into profit, 10% of the profits go into a profit pool and it's held for them, and they all share in that pool when the play finally closes. So in fact, if the play is successful, they'll finally end up making, not only making back what they've cut, but making back more. Uh, uh, it's a strange thing, this is the only one, the only other play that's made a profit was Love, Valor, and Compassion on the Broadway Alliance, and that barely made a profit. It moved to Broadway and just barely paid off, and so a lot of things hadn't been tested. We're in a peculiar position now of coming up. We were able to get Zoe Caldwell because she's my other partner's wife, Mrs. <laughs> Robert Whitehead. <laughs> and so she has a backdoor uh, uh, participation there. But it's a very difficult thing to get any major star to commit to doing a play on Broadway with a $2,500 top. That's one thing. I think they're going to raise that uh, coming up in May. We uh, hope that will be raised somewhat. Why uh, is that? Why why, why you raise the that? Because it's very difficult. Who, how many stars are going to come in to work for that amount of money on Broadway? It's, it's very difficult to get them. And the whole point of this thing is to uh, make a productions possible. But if you make it difficult to get stars, then it... Uh, it uh, well, then you're going to get right back into what caused you to focus on an alliance no, it'll, there it, in the it, first would, it would go to 3500 probably. That's what is being mm -hmm. talked about. And that is not, again, you know, much of a salary for a, a Broadway star. Uh, in any case, it's always evolving. Every, time, every few months they meet and they make a few changes and adjust. They fi keep fine-tuning it. Uh, now, does that go for theater for theater, or uh, can any theater get in on this? Let us say well, the, uh, the each of the all the theater owners there are certain theaters designated, right. and they what what they have done is pick the the theaters that are the least desirable, the most difficult for them to book. They become Broadway Alliance theaters. <laughs> I uh, the Golden is a kind of exception because I think the Golden is a very is a lovely theater, it's and theater. it's uh, and right on 45th Street, it's got a marvelous location. I think we're lucky. I think it may be the best one of all the Alliance theaters. Well, it's an intimate theater too, yeah. isn't it? And it uh, yes, it's intimate. But that that does uh, it does affect. What is your top ticket price as opposed to what it would normally? Well, be? it was forty-five. We got a special dispensation because to go to fifty, 
because we can only find a Zoe could only do seven performances a week. And holding, not only cutting down to seven performances, making one less, uh, and holding the ticket price at 45 made it a very dicey uh, proposition financially, you see. Mm -hmm. So they gave a special dispensation uh, only as long as Zoe is in it. Unless they did you, did you get that special dispensation from the unions? Uh, yes, we had to go back through every through the league and through the unions. And yes. doing only the seven performances. Everybody uh, agreed to that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, actually, uh, Dan, you're really the point person for the union as well, aren't you? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, at least for equity. Person. I mean, in what? terms of it, not not in terms yeah. of negotiation. You're not the equity deputy, I know. Yeah. But basically, you have to control all. It's it's uh, equity people, and, and you're right. on top yes. of that. Yes, and yeah. I actually um, act as kind of like the middleman between the actors, the unions, and the producers. And uh, if indeed uh, at, at some point they want to set up a rehearsal or whatever, the producers will have to come to me. If they say they want to work on the day off, I say, I can't do that. The union won't allow us to work on the day off. And so yes, I'm kind of like the, um, the middleman, you know. And then you, mm -hmm. so then you work under this uh, alliance contract as, yes. the, as the actors do. I'm an, um, but I am a member of Actors' Equity. Stage yeah. managers are right. members of yeah. Actors' Equity. Good. So it's interesting uh, yeah. that they come under that. Yes. Union. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, when when you sign a um, a performer to uh, your production that's going to open. Do you have to state that it's going to be an alliance production? Yeah. Oh, you have to right determine the very that beginning. The beginning. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. You can't make the decision afterwards that you think this show will it will be better off at an alliance theater. At its no, you, you go in on that basis. You go in. Right the at problem the beginning. is, you get in, you can't. And go all out. the contracts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can't get out. That's yeah. one of the problems. When you uh -huh. finally get in, even though we've paid off and run the full course of all the contracts. We still have to stay on that as long as we're in New York. Well, it's like an irrevocable trust. But, yes, exactly. But of course, uh -huh. uh, exactly. Uh, How many alliance theaters do you think Broadway can support? Well, they have a lot more than there are. There are very few Broadway alliance shows. I mean, uh -huh. they just stand there waiting. And uh, uh, as far as I know, let's see, is there something else on this season? Is Barry Child uh, Broadway Barry Child, I think, uh -huh. probably is going to be a Broadway yeah. alliance. The Sam yeah. Shepard yeah. 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 Oh, that's right. I wanted to get quickly, there was a story um, uh, indicated about how the uh, production went, the, the beginning of how did Terrence come to write this play. And uh, I think, isn't it true, Karen, you shared this with me at the break, of, had to do with a Manhattan Theatre Club benefit? Yeah, Terrence tells this story of going of, at a benefit. I guess Nathan Lane did a did a piece from Lisbon Traviata, and then Zoe got up and did a piece from Perfect Ganesh. And um, somehow things just clicked in his head, and he got the idea for Zoe doing a play about Maria Callas. And he wrote on the napkin, he said he had the opening line and the closing line of Masterclass right there on his napkin. And then just had to fill in everything in between. <laughs> I thought you should all know why you're here. Yeah. Why you got here. Because that, that was, uh, that was uh, how those, these great moments come, come about. Um, I, I am, uh, uh, I, I'd like to go back quickly to, to Bill a little bit more because the one thing, uh, and, and, and Jim too, because um, we have talked about what you do but, uh, and how you do this, but I wanted to also talk about uh, a little bit about 
for instance, Jim, in your, you have a stable of whom? I mean, you obviously have graphic artists, are they part of your company? What, you know, you have to ha have a lot of people that interrelate to Bill's work, too. Could you tell us about the, the stable of an ad agency, specifically in the, the Broadway theater uh, milieu, if you will? Sure. Uh, we Why have... don't we stick it to Broadway Alliance there? Okay. You, I, I think I'd like to know more about that as how that relates to you, to your end and to yours, Bill. Are you both... Do you all take cuts? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, take cuts because of that. Yes, we do. Um, but as far as the work goes, there is absolutely no difference. Right. Um, we all come to the theater, I think I can speak for everyone, out of love for the theater. Um, it, it's a privilege to work on Broadway. And I think I can say that about everyone that works in my office. Uh, my partners, Peter Ladon and John Wilner and I, have done this for our entire professional lives, about as long as Bill has. Uh, we've all known each other that long. And we have developed a group of people that work with us. Uh, yes, we have artists on staff. Our art department, as Bill mentions, headed by Patrick Flood. Um, Patrick is a, a brilliant young artist that um, we hired several years ago. Uh, he, he assisted for a while as assistant art director and moved to the position of art director uh, as time went by. And he has hired uh, three others who support him in his work. We have a, a television production editing facility within our uh, offices. Um, and uh, Peter Ladon is the creative director works with our relatively small staff to develop ideas for projects as they come up. Everybody's involved. Anybody who has an idea is invited to, to voice it and to help in the, in the creation of, uh, of good advertising. Um, the, the, the relatively small group of people that we have are, on staff are supported by talents wherever we can find them. Um, we don't hesitate to, uh, to, to hire graphic artists or um, directors or other creative people to produce good communication tools as the project calls for it. Uh, we're fortunate in that the people we have on staff are very talented and, and very often we can do everything that we, we have to do with the people that, that we work with on a daily basis. But there are a wealth of very talented freelance people in this city and elsewhere, and we use them all. Bill, do you have a large staff? Well, it, it uh, changes <coughs> due to the, mm -hmm. the workload. And, and we are, the nuts and bolts, uh, are that I am in a union, uh, which is press agents and managers for theater, and the company manager, and often the general manager, and the press agents are in this union. If I work on one show, I can work on it myself which of course you can't, you'd have an assistant, but in terms of the union, two shows I have to hire a union associate at a certain salary level. Two of us can handle three shows. If a fourth Different show comes level in, on an alliance? Just, it's all 25% less. Oh, in other words, when you submit a budget and you know it's going into the alliance, mm -hmm. that's 25%. Right. Is that true with you, Jim, or not? Uh, we're a bit more forthcoming. Uh, we, we work at half the usual compensation for a Broadway alliance really? production. Yes. 
Now, does the, uh, do the, uh, let's say, the print media or television pick up on that? Do, do they charge 25 for that? Well, to a certain right? extent, uh, the New York Times gives us the, uh, what's called the off-Broadway rate, which is a reduced rate for the space that we purchase in the Times, and the Times is... Is that for Alliance theaters? Yes. Yes, yes only for Alliance productions. Broadway theaters pay a certain rate structure in the New York Times, and it's a rather high one. Even what is for that? the full-page no. ad and colors? Uh, for whatever we do with the Bravo. New York Times. Uh, they they um, saw the wisdom of maintaining, helping develop more healthy theater, and so they, they have contributed to that extent. Um, the rest of the media, un unfortunately for the Alliance, uh, we do the best that we can in negotiating it, but there is no set formula per se, um, uh, unlike the Times, which has been a little bit more responsive. Is it just the Times, or does the Daily News, the Post, have the same deal? Uh, those are negotiable. They are negotiable. Uh, to a certain extent, but um, uh, there is no formal relationship. As that you, you, you mentioned that the, t the ticket price was uh, comparable to the top ticket price of an off-Broadway right. show. Is that, is that spelled out like that, or is it... $45 or $50. No, I understand it's spelled out like that. It is that spelled out like that. There's talk of some off-Broadway show going to $50, in which case then the league, the Alliance shows mm -hmm. could go there. But if the off-Broadway show reduces it, their ticket, uh, can you reduce it? Well, that yours? doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks some of them do, and there's some, there's some marketing that's being done on reduction of tickets. Uh, do you have any rush tickets, or do you have any tickets that are lower price for students? Or well, it goes to TK, the theater. The don't at the moment. We've just been selling out. We, all, we almost always go to TDF at the, earlier on when we open a show. Mm -hmm. um, but in this case, it was virtually sold out from the beginning, you know? I don't remember that we did anything like that, in did we? In the first preview. It yes, is totally sold out. Yeah. Nobody mm -hmm. could buy a ticket. There is a cancellation yeah. line at every performance, though, and I think every time at least somebody so gets, gets something. In. Yeah. 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 Every time what? At every performance, at least somebody who shows up and is willing to wait a little bit in yeah. the cancellation yeah. line is rewarded, yeah. does get a ticket. You know, I've neglected to mention one factor, important factor in the Alliance. The theater owners, the Broadway Alliance theater owners, you get, give you the, the theater rent-free until the show pays off which is significant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I might add, however, that you do pay their, their expenses and overhead, which are fairly large. Yes. But above that, normally you'd pay a five, five, say 5% five of the gross rental in addition to that, which they waive until the show pays off. And, uh, and when it pays off, then where do you go back? You go right back to the normal, pay their extra 5%. But also with the, the reduction of the 25% that you would? No, we don't, no reduction. No reduction. No, they've, re they've taken their reduction by giving it to you rent-free. I see. It's like a concession. Right. Well, that's one other thing I wanted to. Which, what does it take? Uh, what does it cost? I mean, you both have budgets. I know Bill and, and Jim have budgets that you have to deal with that that are uh, agreed upon, either both the alliance and not. What is the average ad nowadays cost in the New York Times, a full page, half page, etc.? The uh, full Broadway rate is sixty thousand dollars for a full page ad. It's um, an expensive proposition. Um, incrementally, of course, they're smaller units. Um, well, that's that's it. Is that the same as it would be, let's say, if I wanted to take a full-page ad for Nike sneakers on uh, on the uh, on the sports page? They get a better rate. 
They do. They they do. The theater has the highest, am I right? You're absolutely right. The New York Times page rate for advertising, the highest rate is for the theater. It is. Yeah. Wow. Sad state of affairs to some extent. Yeah. It's higher. Is it higher? I mean, is that theater and film or just theater? The Broadway theater pays more than any other industry in the New York Times. Interesting. That's a very, yeah. We have some questions here now, so here I am interrupting again. What would you like to ask him to whom? Hi, my name is Margot Evan. I'm an actor. And this question is directed to Diane. Because of vocal rest, we understand that understudies are often called upon to go on. Who handles the rehearsal process? It's basically me. Um, we're responsible for getting the understudies prepared, making sure that they have correct costumes, if uh, there has to be a new costume made for them, getting in touch with the designer, um, and also doing all of the rehearsal. And um, many times a director will come in and also work with them, and we've been very lucky because Lenny has done that with each understudy. Um, he's come in and he's seen rehearsals and he's given them notes and things. But um, if somebody gets sick, the actor will call me, I will call the production people, um, and we'll call the understudy. And uh, if indeed they need to rehearse with Zoe, which has happened, you know, we will come in and we will rehearse. And actually, this is a very, very rare thing. But Zoe has come to an understudy rehearsal and has done the rehearsal, which is quite extraordinary and very rare. How long um, will you be rehearsing with Patty LuPone when she was um, We're starting at the very uh, beginning of June, officially, and I believe that she'll probably be working with Lenny before that. Mm -hmm. But officially, we will start at the beginning of June. When does the cast come in that, to work with her? Uh, that would be... Right uh, at the very beginning. At the beginning of June, yeah. Um, so approximately how many weeks for that? It's be? scheduled for a four-week rehearsal, mm -hmm. which will be approximately uh, three weeks in a rehearsal room, and then the final week on stage, which is important to get used to the um, configuration of the stage. We also... Our set has a dome which for singers changes how they sing because it bounces. And the singers have found there's a, a certain spot that if they stand there, it just throws their, their voices out. Well, Karen, you know that, yeah. You can walk back and you forth and hear the that? difference. Is there something you want to say to that process? Yeah. Um, the rehearsal process, yeah. or you mean finding the yeah. live spot yeah. on stage? Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's great to find that spot. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really wild how the yeah. dome really makes a difference. You're suddenly standing here, you take one step forward, and you sound like you're on a microphone. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's great. The reverberation is really wonderful. Um, Next. Hi, my name is Carly Welsh. I'm also an actor. And my question is from Ms. Cody, and I think to a certain extent Mr. Allen. If you could comment more on the development of the script, um, any changes that were made from Montana to Philadelphia to L.A. to New York, and at what role the producers play in that as well. Um, the, I was surprised at how little the script had changed because, you know, he had just freshly written it in Montana. And then that was in April, and then we got together the following January to start rehearsals. And I sort of figured that there would be lots and lots of changes, but there really weren't. Um, the, I think it really came out of his head pretty much the way he liked it and was satisfied with it. Um, there's been a lot of cuts, you know, tightening things up and moving some sections around, but it pretty much stayed the same. I don't know about 
No, very little change. I don't recall ever doing a play that had so few changes from the first to the last. I don't yeah. ever recall one. Well, well, your character obviously didn't change then at all. No. Much, yeah. I figured that I'd go from this much to this much, but I was still that much. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hi, uh, Ellis Nassour. I'm a writer and a playwright. And Mr. Allen, I have a question for you. The wing programs in the high schools expose a lot of the young students to different roles that they can play in the theater. And a lot of the students always ask, how do you become a producer? <laughs> they always seem to think that producers are immensely wealthy, but that's not always the case, right? No, Aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> if I were, I wouldn't be producing any longer. <laughs> uh, I started off, actually, um, working as a script reader for Bob Whitehead way, way back. And uh, we had known each other before in the war, believe it or not. And I ran into him. I was, I was working at a... Had started a little import-export business that I was working in. I was going to quit and go back to college. And I was in a Neetix having a... We got together and I went, started having dinner and he was raising money for a member of the wedding, the play. And uh, I loved the play. And uh, in fact, I was trying to be a writer. And I helped him raise a little money. And then it was successful. He invited me to some rehearsals. And then when it was successful, he said, how would you like to come and read scripts for me? And I thought that was great. I didn't have to keep strict office hours. I got to see a lot of shows and read scripts. And then the following year, he made me his assistant. And we did it on a play series and uh, five plays in five months there. And uh, I was his assistant. He moved me right up. And I worked uh, as his assistant and with Harold Clerman, who was doing a lot of his plays. I was Harold's assistant on eight straight, eight plays. I would sit at his side and take notes for him all through rehearsals, out of town. So I acted as both director and producer's assistant. I stayed on with Bob for a while, and then eventually I just started on my own when I found some projects that he didn't want to do, particularly a couple of films, and he didn't, wasn't really interested in movies. Well, that's a great... Uh, I, I cannot think of a better uh, uh, pair of teachers than Harold Clinton well, and, and Bob Whitehead. Uh, that was... It was wonderful, and you know, almost every night we, at Bob's house, we'd have dinner or something, and there was always there, almost every night, was Harold and Bob, of course, and... Um, um, uh, what's his name? The cartoonist. Z uh, <laughs> Hirschfeld. <laughs> Al Hirschfeld. Yeah. Al Hirschfeld and Boris Aronson. Well, that, and that was, was a talk into, late into the night. I went through all that, plus going through these plays. And I, I feel that I probably have more of a background, uh, aside from Bob, say, in the, really in the workings of the theater than any producer I know, anyway. Mm -hmm. Because that was uh, eight plays with Harold, and I say, and that was right through rehearsals, out of town, always at his side. Well, he was uh, yeah, also, again, a wonderful director, a great critic. Um, yeah. And so that you're, uh, and it's, you might want to say something without having, uh, we won't quote you, but mm -hmm. it'll be on the air anyway. Uh, so <laughs> you're but, but there is a, uh, you, you bring that up. Today, uh, I've heard uh, so many people say there aren't any old-time, and that's not a matter of age anymore, mm -hmm. old-time producers. Would you care to speak to that? Because a lot of people have made a lot of money somewhere else and decide either on um, in the market or something and suddenly hang out a shingle and say, I'm a producer. Is, is, has that been well, your Well, that take? is a symptom in part of the cost of shows, of raising money. And the, I say the old-time producers, I never recall when I worked with Bob ever almost never thinking about the money side of it because it was, they'd cost $75,000 and a, it was mostly friends and people that worked in the theater. They'd put up a thousand or fifteen hundred or two thousand and it was just happened if you were, had a good show. And now as it's escalated the costs uh, more and more, you have to get people coming in with a lot of money. 
and therefore they want their name on it and they're producers. So you, you see a bunch of names up there uh, of producers and uh, how much experience, I won't, uh, you know, it varies with them, but they, most of them don't know a lot about it. And have not had that training. Oh, of course. Which, oh, uh, no, no. Yeah, so, uh, I don't but know there are some things. left. There are some left. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that I'm going to have to interrupt you once more and say that this is the production seminar of the American Theatre Wings working in the theatre seminars. And we've been extremely fortunate to be able to have the people that brought to the stage and the wonderful excitement of Masterclass, a play that's now playing on Broadway and is really one of the most exciting, beautiful theatrical experiences that anyone can possibly see. And I thank all of you for being here. I wish there was more time. You've been so kind to share the knowledge that you have in who does what and what goes into a production and how it's produced. Uh, we in the audience see the magic, the lights, and the performances, but to be able to hear all the planning and all the problems and all of the work that goes in before is extremely important. It's important to us and it's important to our students and it's important to the American Theatre Wing who brings these seminars to you. Thank you all for being here.